turn in our Bibles this morning to Psalm 103. In a few weeks, the Olympic Games will begin, and uh, athletes will compete, hoping that they brought their A-game to South America. There will be incredible stories of success, and there will be disappointing and unbelievable letdowns. That's part of what it is to be in the Olympics. When athletes succeed, they have the privilege of standing atop a podium, and a song will be played. It is their national anthem. National anthems are songs that are written to evoke pride in country, of the homeland, of the place that one calls their home, their country. Those songs speak of the best that countries have to offer and aid in unifying people that are so prone to be divided. National anthems are not exhaustive statements. Instead, they tend to be representative statements, snippets or summaries, if you will, that powerfully express pride of, pride of country that wells up in the heart about the place where we belong and about the place where we are loved. And when set to music, they fill a citizen with the best thoughts of the homeland. They evoke a confidence and pride, often uh, manifested in tears of joy. When I read Psalm 103, I think I'm reading an anthem to God. But Psalm 103 is an anthem in praise of the King of Kings. It is an anthem that never exaggerates. And it is an anthem that is meant to glorify God himself. The circumstances of the psalm that we're going to look at this morning are unclear. Meaning, if you ask the question, what is it that caused David to write this particular psalm? You're going to struggle to find an answer in the context of it. It seems to be a broader, probably later in life reflection on the goodness of God that has been so solidified in the heart of David that it just, it, it's a spontaneous bursting forth, okay? There's just this overflow of gratitude to and for the goodness of God as the psalmist appears to reflect on the love, mercy, and sovereignty of the God with whom he has enjoyed a relationship. I believe that the aim of this psalm, and this I think is the important question, why does David record this? What is the desired impact on the reader? In other words, I don't think David wrote this for himself. I think David wrote this psalm out of his old age to communicate something to the nation that he has grown to love. He is a man that we know has struggled in his own life. But at the end of the day, David is a man who was confessionally repentant. And in the final address could be called a man after God's own heart. This is the overflow of a man, of an individual who has a heart for God. This is the way your mind will tend to think. Particularly his thoughts about what I believe is the central theme of this psalm, and that is the loyal covenant love of God. The deep commitment of God, the unalterable commitment of God to rebels who have been redeemed only by his mercy and grace. So I want to work through the psalm by first looking at verses 1 through 5, which I'm going to, I'm going to take you to the next section and then I'll read it to you, okay? So Psalm 103, 1 to 5, says this. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals 
all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So the first part of this psalm is, I think, a call from David first to himself. Okay, so he's going to have an internal conversation. You, you, you probably have the tendency to get nervous when people talk to themselves. Okay, some people make you really nervous when they answer themselves. The people that make you really nervous are the ones that say, huh? <laughs> You'll think about that a second. Okay, what's the psalmist doing? He's saying, I'm going to have a conversation with myself. I am going to charge myself with a responsibility. And that responsibility is to praise the Lord. And it, it's fascinating. He says to himself internally, perhaps struggling with feeling distant from God and to get back into a deeper confidence in God and a deeper relationship with God, a deeper comfort in God, he gives himself a challenge. And the, in, in the original, you're going to find that there's really two words. One is praise, one is bless. And some translations think that they're synonymous. Some find them to be a bit different in terms of nuance and meaning. I think if you're going to come up with a nuance, you're going to say that praise is obviously an explosive expression of adoration. To bless probably means something like to talk about God in a way that, that piles esteem on God. That makes God attractive to the person that hears you talking. Okay, so it's that kind of an idea. So I, I, I like the idea of bless, and I think there's an intention in the psalmist's heart that he would so exalt God that confidence would begin to grow. Uh, his heart would be renewed and sustained before God. And I, as I read that, I think, man, I need that. And I think the other part is that David, David seems to be drawing a distinction between what fires off the lips and what fires off the heart. There seems to be, I think John Piper said it was, he was concerned about a conflict between what his lips were saying and what his heart was loving. Do you ever have that experience? You might have had it this morning. 10,000 reasons for my heart to sing. And you're in a frumpy mood. (laughs) And you're thinking to yourself, hey, what is David saying? God, I want there to be consistency. I want there to be unity between affections expressed from the mouth, words, and the truth of my heart. And I I thought, holy cow, that's a a hypocrisy that we want to see in our hearts die, in our lives die. So that our praise of God can be, as he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. There is, man, you watch people at athletic events and they're wholehearted. They're all in, right? That's the way you talk about it. And David's saying, God, I want to be with you daily, all in. I want to have a lack of hypocrisy between what is expressed and what is truly believed and lived. I want the affection from my heart, or from my mouth, to be the affection of my heart. And see, this is why Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you find that there is a disconnection between what is emerging from the mouth and what's really in the heart. Boy, you need to go to God and have a conversation with God and have a conversation with yourself. Be brutally honest with yourself. And I I thought of this. My tendency is to be a very busy person. Okay, I tend to like having a lot of tracks running. Not sure exactly why. My daughters were telling me the other day that they were reading the diagnosis for ADD. 
And they thought it was downright funny because they said, we know him. <laughs> so I've lived with him my whole life. <laughs> so there's, there's this tendency to have so many tracks going that it's hard to have the affections. This is true in, probably in most relationships in my life. Like if I'm talking to you, I am, I am dying to listen to you, but I'm probably listening to the person next door. Not because I want to. It just, it's just the way that I'm wired. It's weird. It's just the way I'm wired. It enables me to get... A lot of stuff done, but it's, sometimes it's, it can be painful and hurtful to people around me. And I think what David is saying, God, I want my heart not to be too busy. So you have to, we have to, in a busy culture, discipline our lives so that the affections for God can be stoked, can be encouraged. That's what David says, with all my soul, with everything I am, I want to love God more than I love anything else. More than I love my family, more than I love a grandchild, more than I love success. Because you begin to realize that the best thing I can give to those around me is a passionate love for God. If you're like me, I get around people that are contagious in their love for Christ. And I'm like, man, I want, I want that. I want to know God in a way that he is the one, as the psalmist says at the end, he satisfies my life. What, what David then does after confronting the tendency to be hypocritical, he also says, don't forget all his benefits. Notice that at the end of verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy. Talk about it. Don't forget his benefits. In other words, there is a, it's not that God is just simply great. It's that the God who is great has moved into my realm, into my life, into my heart. That should blow our minds. And David says, don't forget. Because if you forget, your heart will wander from God. That's what we should fear. That I can be praising God while my heart is far from him. That's what Jesus says later in Matthew, doesn't he? The test of true affection, of a true walk with God, is that the heart and mouth are aligned. Jesus says in Matthew, it's condemning. You praise me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. I said, God, sometimes that's where I am. I don't want to, that divided life is not a fun life. It's, it's tearing, it's difficult. Psalmist says, forgetting that all his benefits. And then he goes into this staccato list of blessings. Fascinating, the first one on the list, which I would assume means something about priority. He forgives all your transgressions. All of your intentional, rebellious, not missteps and mistakes, but intention to do something different than they know to be the call of God or the will of God. You know what David says? He forgave me every time. When I came to him with a repentant, broken heart, Psalm 51, Psalm 32 that we talked about last summer. When you come to God like that, David's like, I am such a messed up idiot spiritually. And he loves me. He loves me. David's like, bless that God. He forgives all my sin. Folks, he is fully devoted to you in spite of what you do. Don't let that be permission. Let that be amazement and transformation. That's what David wants. He wants the hypocrisy of distance between lips and heart to fade. And I think it's where he's coming. He becomes a man after God's heart. I want to be that. Don't forget his benefits. And I, I, Here's what I think. I don't think that David is trying to challenge you intellectually in this text. I think David is trying to prompt adoration of God. I don't think he wants me to go through these verses, unpack every word, nuances, and everything. I think he wants me to stand back, and he just goes, boom, 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 boom. That is your God. Now, 
I'm tempted to touch every one of them. I'm not going to. I'm like, right now I am resisting, okay, because it's all in my notes. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you, read through it, okay? And I, 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 he forgives, he restores, he redeems from the pit, the place of death, Shehol. And I love the last two. He crowns your life with loving kindness. And folks, a crown is a sign of approval and honor. And in Christ, you and I, Ephesians says, are seated with him where? In the heavenly places. Where is Jesus? He is sitting at the Father's right hand. And Father in heaven crowns his children with loving kindness. With a with, a, with a, a sign of their royalty via relationship with God and a sign of his deep affection, loving kindness. And that loving kindness is covenant love. It's, it's a committed love. It's a devoted love. It's like a marital love or a parental love. He's going to go to that in a minute. Okay, it's deep. David, he crowns my life. Praise confronts my tendency to do something. My tendency, and it's, uh, I think it's uh, Powson who said this, and it's repeated by a couple other people. He said, I have a tendency to listen my, to myself, and what I really need to do is talk to myself. If you listen to yourself, you will find thoughts of condemnation. You will find that the accuser of the brothers is alive and well and active. And David is saying, in those seasons, bless the Lord. Don't forget his benefits. He forgives your sin that the accuser continues to want to bring up. He crowns you with loving kindness. And as I read through this, I started to realize that some of the, the themes of Psalm 23, of the glory of the shepherd pouring out blessing, he, you know, he, uh, 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 surely goodness and mercy, those words will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is saying, I am reveling in that in my later years. And that is a, 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 a ground of assurance and what is he saying? I speak that to myself over and over and over. I don't forgive, forget his benefits, the one who does everything that's listed in verses 3 through 5. David says, I just, I think about it. I talk to myself about it. And what is he doing? He, he's, he's, he's confronting the tendency that comes up in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, it says this. The psalmist says, why are you so cast down, O my soul? Fascinatingly, the beginning of that psalm is, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my heart pants after you, O God. He's glory. And then he's like, okay, but here, here's the reality. Sometimes I have to say to myself, why are you so cast down? Like looking in the mirror and talking to yourself. And then here's what he says to himself. You hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Which means what? It means that sometimes, yes, we are in the valleys. And in the valleys and in the struggle and in the difficulty, we need to remember that there is a God who is actively for us. Not just an amazing God, but an amazing God who moves in our direction in these ways. And this is just, I believe, a representative, not exhaustive list. There's a whole lot more that David could have said. He does it in Psalm 137, doesn't he? He goes on and on and on and on and on about the blessings of God. He could, but here is, his aim is different. His aim is different. So I'm going to encourage you this morning. Uh, rehearse the blessings of God. Talk about the goodness of God. Talk to yourself so that your life is permeated with the goodness and mercy of God so that when you rub against people and interact with people, it gets on them for the glory of God. So in love with God that it begins to rub off around you. Hope in God. 
And as you do that, your circumstances may not change, but your perspective will. And I love that. I love when somebody in the midst of a difficult circumstance has a change of heart without a change of circumstance because they started looking at God. That's what the psalmist is doing. Bless him, praise him, everything I have. Now, the question that comes up then is this. Why should we rehearse those blessings? And I think that question is answered as you move forward. Why should I with all my heart and soul wholeheartedly bless the Lord? Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Now, the oppressed is a category of people who are experiencing difficulty without someone having their back. Okay? Now, I, I know I drift into dangerous territory. But please understand what I'm saying. Okay, and don't assume that I'm, I'm jumping one way or another in light of current circumstances. Okay, very simply, if you look at what's going on in America right now, you will find that there is a deep divide and tension over the way things appear. Okay, and the way things appear is often in line with reality. Okay, just because a lawyer can speak his way out of it doesn't mean that that's the truth. You all do believe that, right? I have a son-in-law that's a lawyer, so... Okay, there is a group of people who have seen things happen that have been deeply distressing to them. And some of the things have been deeply distressing to me as I watch. And there is a, there's a if you're being unprejudiced in your thinking, I don't mean racially, I mean in your thinking. If you're not being prejudged in your thinking, you realize that there is a deep complexity to what is happening, and you should at some level understand why certain people feel the way they feel. You should have an understanding of that by just simply being transparent and honest. Like, I get it. I get what you're saying. And I get the desire that they have because it's the same desire I have when the stupidest little insignificant thing happens. I started doing this when I was young. I have two brothers that are are, are each one year older than me, okay? We're, we're kind of lined up 55, 56, 57, and 58, okay? That's my family ages. I'll be 56 in September, okay? So for the sake of discussion, it's the way we're lined up. I learned very quickly that I hated injustice. As the youngest of three brothers who was constantly physically assaulted, okay? I, I, I remember, <laughs> I said this so many times, 100 times, I would say, Kenny, knock it off! That's my oldest brother. My mama, Timmy, would you stop saying that? Oh, no, he keeps doing this and this and this. What was my grape? He was, he's not being just. He's treating me unfairly. And I wish my mom and dad would do something about it. That's what I was feeling in my heart. No one taught me to want justice. There is a natural desire in your heart to see the wrong made right. And that the people that have done wrong, no matter what the circumstances, should be punished. It's that simple. I understand that people want to go out and desire that and express a desire for that in an appropriate way. Because that's, that's what the psalmist is saying. It's what he say, is saying encourages his heart in the dark seasons when he feels oppressed. And it's fascinating because notice what happens in this text. He says the Lord works righteousness for, and justice for the oppressed. He works. He does it. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. This becomes fascinating. Because if you know the Bible, you know that the the strongest picture of unjust oppression fell on the shoulders of a nation, the nation of Israel, who lived in slavery, racial slavery, for 400 years. And God in his mercy, 
as he saw the pain and suffering, moved and raised up a deliverer named Moses. Moses is like, God, I want to know you. Do you remember after he goes up on Mount Sinai, he receives the Ten Commandments, he comes back down and he finds the people in party mode who have created a gold idol called Baal, and God is justly furious with them. Why? Well, for the same reason that you get angry with people. You do them good, you bless them, they abuse it or reject it or turn from it, and you feel a just sense of that's not right. And that's what happens as Moses comes down off the mountain and the people are in, in, in idolatry while God himself is really revealing himself to Moses. And Moses says, God, I, how, how can you love these people? Psalm 33, verse 7, God, God says, I knew they were a stiff-necked people. That they would, you know what a child does when they're little and they want to get on the floor, they turn into a two-by-four and it's hard to embrace, right? You know what I'm talking about. That, that Israel was that always wiggling out of the arms of God, wanting life on their terms and their way. And as Moses contemplates God moving in the direction and God blessing them, his struggle is what kind of God could love these people? What kind of sovereign, omnipotent God would be merciful and gracious to these people? And he says, God, I need to see you. <laughs> I need to see you. And God says to Moses, Moses, you, if you see me in all of my glory, in all of my righteousness, it'll destroy you. It's, it's, it's unbearable glory and holiness. It's... And God says to Moses, Moses, I get what you're asking. I will invite you to come. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. My face you cannot see, but I will give you a minimal glimpse of my glory. And what is he saying to me? He's saying, Moses, if you, if you understand with clarity just a little bit of who I am, you will be forever changed. And you will understand my love. So he, Moses goes back up on the mountain. He corrects the people. He chastises them appropriately. He expresses all of his parental frustration with this new family that God caused him to adopt. And he goes up on the mountain of God, hides him in the cleft of the rock. And as God passes by, he, God himself intones for Moses, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. Extending mercy to your children's children. And what is God saying? God is saying, Moses, I am incredibly gracious and just. And, 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 and so... Moses goes down from the mountain. He is glowing. He had seen a little bit of God and was changed. You know what, folks? Here's what's so cool. When you come into the New Testament in John chapter 1 and verse 14, John, speaking of Jesus, uses the same description from Exodus to talk about Christ. He says, I, I, mean, just, I, I, I said I wanted to do this to myself this morning. I said I want to read this to you. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. In Christ, John, the disciples, the people that saw him, saw God, veiled in human flesh. That's the way we sing the song at Christmas, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate in flesh, deity. Transformational view. And here's what he says. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came down from the Father. He is full of what? Grace and truth. He is full of grace and justice. He will do what is right. And then when you go over to verse 16, it says, from the fullness of his grace, from this overflow, this grace that we sing about, grace flows down and covers me, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another, one stacked upon another. That's what, that's what David's trying to communicate, that Israel undeserving, rebel-hearted received the grace of God. Do you realize that the greatest manifestation of the grace of God came at the time of their greatest sinfulness? Because that love and that favor and that mercy of God will utterly change your life or you do not know it. So if you say, well, I know Jesus, but I have no affections for Jesus, then you don't know this Jesus. And you need to flee to him. And you have every reason why. He is full of grace and truth. He is overflowing in mercy. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you repent, and own him as Savior and Lord, your life will be changed. John says, no one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's right hand, Jesus, who came in flesh, has made him known. So if I want to know what God is like in grace and mercy, where do I look? I look at Jesus. And that's what the psalmist is picking off. He's full of, this God is full of grace and truth and favor. He is, verse 8, compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse. He will because he is just, but he is also gracious, and he will withdraw the finger of conviction and cover you with an overflow of grace when you turn from your sin. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever, even though I put in parentheses, it is totally just and deserved. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That is, is that not awesome? He will not repay you according to your iniquities. Well, if that is the case, then he is not a just God. You hear what I said? If he doesn't repay me according to my iniquities, then he is not a just God. Unless my iniquity and its consequence falls on a just, righteous God-man who can bear the consequence for my sin. And I go free. Folks, that's, the, that's why John says, we saw God in Jesus. I mean, not saw him as God. He was God. And the sinless, eternal God hung on a cross to change my life. And to remove the accusation. It's told, when God says to him, you are a sinner, you are a rebel, he is absolutely correct. My only plea is that, yes, Lord, I confess that I, by virtue of your grace, see that placed on your son, Jesus Christ, so that the hostility between myself and God, the accusation, is removed because it is born by Christ. That's why David is so happy here. He understands and writes better than he knows. I, I formulated this text in a, in a, in a, in a statement. I'll, I'll share this with you now and I'll share it at the end. Sin puts distance between us and God. And David knew what that was. 
That's what happens in Genesis 3, isn't it? When Adam and Eve violate, when they intentionally rebel against the simple directive of God, enjoy my goodness, not this particular expression. They listen instead of talk to themselves. They listen to the evil one. They succumb and they fall. And then the God who they've been enjoying in fellowship with him comes walking in the cool of the day. And what is the response of Adam and Eve? They hide themselves. Why? Because sin will always put distance between you and God. And here's the other thing you'll find. That distance will be manifested in your personal relationships. You will find that when sin is present in your life, you will still start to live in isolation for fear of exposure before people who are not full of grace and truth. So sin puts distance between me and God. The cross puts distance between me and my sin. If you can let that formulation settle into your heart, that when I sin, I put distance between myself and God. But when I flee to the cross and 1 John 1, 9, confess my sin, he is faithful and just. Same picture that Jesus is full of grace and truth and that God in the Old Testament reveals himself as a God of loyal love, deeply compassionate and inclined to forgive, desiring to forgive. That same God, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which should simply blow your mind. And when that sin is forgiven, here's what you will find. You will find proximity with God increases. Because in James, here's the way God says it. Draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. Move in my direction. I'll be there in a heartbeat. Now just read the rest of these verses. Even though I have extensive notes for all of them. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. It doesn't say that the love of God is great towards all. This kind of love. This covenant, familial love is the experience of repentant believers who fear God. Okay, that's the thrust of this text. There is a sense in which God loves the world, John 3, 16. There is a sense in which God loves his children in this text. Okay, I used to say to the kids at youth group, if something goes wrong, I'm grabbing my daughters first. I love all of you, but I really love them. Okay, and I would draw a distinction in my relationship to them and my relationship to them. Okay, that's what this text does. And David says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. I don't think David wants you to get out and say, well, I think the atmosphere is so many miles up and go into intellectual calculations. He wants you to say, wow, wow. That's an extensive universe that I live in. And God's love for me is, is that high, that strong, that great. Verse 12, and this is what drew me to this text. As far as the east is from the west, so Far has he removed our transgressions, not our mistakes, not our missteps, not the word sin, our transgressions, our intentional stepping away from God and into the realm of self-direction. Okay, that is what God has forgiven David of. And David says, I am so grateful. 
that God loves me in that kind of way. And I would argue from this text that David is saying something like, only when I see how incredibly sinful I am can I know how incredibly and unbelievably glorious is the forgiveness and mercy of God. Minimize your sinfulness at the peril of God and knowing him and blessing him. Understand your sinfulness. Be clear about it. Call it what it is. Rebellion against the sovereign God. And his grace will become for you amazing grace. You risk losing the amazement of grace if you diminish the holiness of God. I challenge you to think clearly. David says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And once again, I don't think it's meant to be a calculation. I think it's just a simple way of saying it is completely gone. In 1985, my wife and I were married on June 21st. In early July, we were down in Ocean City, New Jersey, and we were out water skiing, and I was trying to get started on a single ski. And when you do that, if, if, if you haven't done it often, you find that the rope tends to want to fly out of your hands. I lost a precious item that day, 10 days after I was married. I lost my wedding ring. I was sitting at dinner that night thinking, oh, no, how do I break this news to my wife? And she was very gracious about it, but I'm going to tell you something. I never had the thought that, you know what, I'm going to go look for that. Okay, I treated that as, that's gone. That's gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sin from us. I think the Psalms also say that he has put our sin behind his back and buried it in the depths of the sea. That's God. And that's his grace. And the last thought I leave you with is that this God who loves us so amazingly is a God who is also parental. The text says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. Then the wind blows and it is gone. Two simple thoughts. God loves me with amazing grace, even though I am incredibly sinful. Even though I am incredibly frail even though I'm incredibly temporary in this life. He loves me with an everlasting love because of the grace of God that has been revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, the way Paul, I think, summarizes this theme of this psalm is in Romans 8 and verse 28. He asks the question, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, everybody. Who can successfully against us nobody this is the amazing grace of God sin puts distance between us and God the cross removes our sin as far as the east is from the west so that a condemnable man because of the grace of God can stand justly and forgiven before God Sometimes at the end of my sermon, I, I, I want to ask you, and sometimes I've, I've said this to you, what is your problem that the grace of God can't overcome? What is the sin that the grace of God can't forgive? What is the thing that's hiding you in darkness, in isolation, distant from God? I mean, own it. Acknowledge it. Whatever it is, no matter how shameful it is, own it. Confess it. And find that God is full of grace and truth. That he will bring you into the place that David is. Where you start to sense a new desire in your heart. To say, I want my confession. What I say in the elements of communion. 
to be consistent with what is really in my heart. Does that make sense? So that what I do outwardly is utterly consistent with what God is doing inwardly. And then you will say, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. And don't forget his 10,000 benefits. And 10,000 times 10,000 is just meaning infinite. Amazing grace. Father, as we come this morning to the Lord's table, to communion, after a season of worship, Father, we want, we want you to, as the songwriter says, tune our hearts to sing your praise. Lord, some of our hearts are flat. Some of our hearts are sharp. There is distraction. There is transgression. There are things that need to be dealt with. And we, having heard of your grace, we want to run to you. Like Thomas ran to you when he saw the resurrected Lord and said, Lord, I believe I believe, God, help us to own our sin. Confess it to you this morning, freely, boldly, to a God who is just and merciful, so that we can then come and, and receive these symbols of, of the cross work of what the God-man did, full of grace and truth, full of mercy, full of forgiveness, who forgives all of our sins, that we would confess and find it's gone. That distance between my heart and God is removed and I now love him by the Spirit. And I'm crowned with loving kindness. God, let our receiving the elements be joyful praise, wholehearted, full-bodied expression of love for God. So, Father, as we now sing, help us to, in our hearts, contemplate and prepare. Father, if there are some here this morning that don't know you, I, I pray that today through the Lord's table, they would hear your grace proclaimed and they would, in their hearts, fall before you and trust you and own you as Lord and Savior, confessing, repenting, and you saving, God. You saving. And for us that know you, let us examine ourselves and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup and in so doing, proclaim the glorious death of our Lord as our salvation. We bless you, Lord. We praise you. Let it come now from our hearts in song, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and worship.